Good morning again. My name is Rick Penner. I'm one of the pastors here at Nelson Covenant, and I'm filling in for Jeff this morning. Uh, This last week on Wednesday, known as Ash Wednesday, marked the beginning of Lent. And Lent is a period of time, usually around 40 days. Uh, If you look at the calendar and you count the days, it's about 46. But it's meant to represent 40 days leading up to Good Friday and Easter. And this 40-day period, it's meant to reflect the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness fasting and being tested after his baptism and in preparation for his ministry. It also reminds us of the 40 years that Israel wandered in the desert after being freed from slavery in Egypt and before they were ready to enter the promised land. And in a similar way, Lent can serve as a yearly season to help us recalibrate, reorient, reprioritize, or as Pastor Jeff's recent sermon series has been teaching us to reset our lives around Jesus. And in order to help with this resetting and reorienting process, during Lent it's a common practice for Christians to fast from something, to dive deeper into their prayer life, and to give charitably. And these are not legalistic practices that somehow give us a gold star or a badge of honor and holiness or anything, but they are meant to be intentional spiritual practices that help us evaluate the condition of our hearts and to take an honest look at um, the spiritual fitness of our lives, if you will. Lent is, it's not just about making life harder for ourselves uh, through these three practices, but it's about actually letting the Holy Spirit do some much needed internal conditioning work in our lives so that we can deepen our relationship with God and continue to grow as disciples and prepare to celebrate Easter with anticipation and excitement. Now, I mentioned spiritual fitness and spiritual conditioning And that might sound like a strange way of framing the Christian life, but the Bible teaches us that being a disciple of Jesus means that we are in a process of becoming more and more like him. It is a process by which the Holy Spirit is actually transforming us and changing us into becoming people who are fit for the kingdom of God. And the Bible's word for this conditioning process is sanctification. So I think it's a good question to wrestle with what makes us fit to be citizen, citizens of God's kingdom? There is a story in the Gospel of Luke which I'd like to focus on today because I think it has something important to teach us about this question. What makes someone fit for the kingdom of God? So if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, I invite you to open them up to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And as you're looking that up, it's the third, third book in the New Testament. That's the last half of the Bible. As you're looking that up, I want to give you a little bit of context about what's happening um, so far in the Gospel of Luke. Just a very condensed summary. Jesus has been gaining followers. He's been doing miracles. He's been traveling and teaching people what it looks like when God is in charge of running things in contrast to what it looks like when the kingdoms of the world are in charge of running things. And we learn that God's kingdom looks like an upside-down kind of kingdom to us because there is a reversal of values, values that our world hold high, like money and status and display of power and fame, 
are not markers that determine value in God's kingdom. Instead, things like humility and generosity, loving your enemy and caring for the needs of others, those are some of the examples of what's valuable when God is in charge. So Jesus has been teaching people what God's kingdom looks like, how it functions through parables. And one commentator observes that here in chapter 18, Jesus makes a shift to teaching about the fitness requirements for living in God's kingdom. And here he tells this story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Let's read it. It's Luke 18, 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And again, parable, uh, if you're not familiar, is simply a, a short story that uses everyday kind of earthy examples that people could have related to, but they teach us something about God's character and God's kingdom. And in this case, he's trying to teach us something about what it looks like to be fit for God's kingdom. So he says this, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In this story, there are two types of polar opposite people. And the assumption right from the get-go is that the Pharisee should be the one who is qualified for God's kingdom and not the tax collector. So let's take a little closer look at both of these characters. We'll look at the Pharisee first. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible or you grew up in a church context, then you're probably preconditioned to associate Pharisees with something negative. And that's because Jesus does give them a pretty hard time throughout the Gospels. However, to the, to the original audience, this was not the case at all. To them, the Pharisees were role model citizens. For us, I would imagine, I would invite us to think about a very positive Christian celebrity role model, maybe a great public speaker, someone who has the appearance of being morally upright and having integrity, someone who is highly respected and admired and probably quite well educated. This is the kind of image that Jesus' listeners would have had about this Pharisee. The Pharisee goes into the temple to pray. He separates himself from others in the temple and he stands and prays. While this posture was actually culturally expected and appropriate, it does communicate something about how this Pharisee perceived himself, God, and others. The beginning of his prayer actually sounds like it's going to be pretty good. He begins by giving thanks to God. 
Only we quickly realize that this praise is not really directed to God, but rather to himself. Let's look at verse 11 again. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Now these boastful claims were actually probably true. Pharisees were an elite Jewish sect and they were expected to be men of high moral and ethical standards. All Jews were required to obey the law of Moses, but the Pharisees created a bunch of additional hard-to-keep rules that went far above and beyond what the law of Moses required, and even these the Pharisees obeyed. This Pharisee fasted more than was required. He tithed more than was required. Surely God ought to be somewhat impressed with him. This Pharisee truly tried to obey the law of Moses and then some, but we have to ask, to what end? See, Scripture teaches us that the whole law can be summed up in this one law. It's a two-part law. To love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the law was not meant to be a legalistic set of rules. The spirit of the law was meant to help you know how to love God and how to love your neighbor. So what was the Pharisees' motivation for obeying the law? Was it a love for God and neighbor? Hmm, well, (laughs) what's his attitude towards his neighbor in this prayer? Read verse 11 again. Thanks, God, that I'm not like other people, like those who are robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. The Pharisee looks at his neighbors as less than. He looks at them with contempt. His obedience of the letter of the law is not actually a loving expression toward God. It's a legalistic, merit-based self-righteousness. Now let's switch characters for a moment. Let's look at the tax collector. What, what was so bad about him? Well, tax collectors in, Israel's were viewed, in Israel were viewed as crooks and traitors. They worked for the oppressive Roman government, taking from the poor to give to the evil empire. They were kind of the opposite of a Robin Hood figure. And many of them were known to charge a little bit of extra tax to pad their own pockets. It would have been any worshiper's instinct at the temple to look down at the tax collector and think to themselves, this guy does not belong here. Surely this guy is not fit for the kingdom of God. But now let's look at the tax collector's prayer in verse 13. It says, but the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven but he beat his breast and he said God have mercy on me a sinner just notice the contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector the Pharisee sets himself apart to pray the tax collector stands far off where he won't be noticed The Pharisee, it is assumed, would look up to heaven. That was a customary way of praying. But the tax collector dares not look up to heaven. 
the, tax, the Pharisee gives God thanks for all the ways in which he is not like other men. But the tax collector has nothing to boast about. He knows full well that he does not deserve to be in God's presence. He's fully aware that his life has not been a life of integrity. And nothing that he has done makes him fit for God's kingdom. Beating his breast was a physical sign of repentance. And this is important to know. It's a small detail, but it's important to notice. The word for repentance in Greek is oftentimes translated metanoia, which literally means to change one's way of thinking. Transformation of the mind. Jeff talked about that a few weeks ago. And this sounds easy, right? I can just change my mind on things, but it's actually really, really hard to change the way people think. To truly change the way we live, we have to first change the way we think. And that is not something we can do on our own. That is only something that God can do in us. But here's the thing, it does require our response. It does require our participation. It requires an honesty, an openness and surrender from our part, which is really only possible through an attitude of humility. This humility is what the tax collector exemplifies. All he dares say in his prayer is, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, parables, the way they work is they usually have an element of surprise. They have an element of shock value somewhere in the parable. And it's right here at the end that we get it. Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you that this man, that is the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Somehow this unlikely shady character, he's the one who gets the stamp of approval for being fit for God's kingdom. This would have left the audience's jaws gaping. What? Uh, how? What made the Pharisee unfit for God's kingdom? He was the one who had religiously obeyed the law and then some. This pathetic tax collector rolls in, hasn't done anything good yet. I mean, come on, Jesus. Are good works not important to you? Let's be clear. Good works are important for the Christian life. In fact, they are essential for a vibrant faith and discipleship. They're, they're evidence of a growing discipleship. In James, one of the later books in the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 17, it says, So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Good deeds are important to Jesus. Let's not misunderstand that. And the Pharisee has done good deeds. So then what disqualified him from going home justified? I'd like to explain this with a personal illustration from my previous job as a pilot. And I know, I th I'm thinking this myself, usually my illustrations are from flying, and I probably need some new illustrations in my repertoire, but today you're gonna get another flying illustration because I think it makes a good point. So in order to be fit to fly as a commercial pilot, a pilot has to pass two exams every year. The first one is a yearly flight test. And you can think of this as, let's think of this as the good works test, the good deeds test. 
So in this good works test, an examiner will grill you on all your head knowledge and on being able to perform a safe flight in all kinds of adverse situations and scenarios. This is an important test. And if you make too many mistakes and you fail it, they can't send you out on a commercial flight the next day. They can't send you out until you pass the test. But here's the thing, you don't lose your flight, you don't lose your pilot license. Even though you fail the test, even though maybe you've made some mistakes, you'll still have your license. It just means you're going to need to go back to flight school for a little bit, do some additional training, some more studying, some more preparing, and then you can try the test again. But then there's another test, and this one determines whether you'll ever enter an airplane again or not. And that's a medical test. Among other things, two of the most important things that the doctor checks is your eyesight and your heart. You have to do well on the electrocardiogram and vision test in order for the doctor to stamp your pilot license as being fit to fly for another year. Now, a pilot may have crazy good skills in the aircraft. He might have all the right head knowledge about airspace and air law and navigation, but none of that is really worth anything if the condition of your heart is not okay or if your vision is impaired because the doctor will actually withhold your pilot license and the report will say unfit to fly. The Pharisee had good works, and those are important. But the condition of his heart made him unfit for God's kingdom. His heart was filled with a cancer called pride. And you might think, well, what's the big deal with pride? Surely there are far worse sins that your heart can be filled with. But there is a unique danger to the sin of pride. It's actually classically known as one of the seven deadly sins. And one commentator says this, I love it. He says, the real danger of pride is that it blinds us to how we really stand before God. In other words, when pride fills our heart, we become spiritually blind. Pride led the Pharisee to think that he would be fit for God's kingdom by his own merit. And I want to pause again and I want to reflect on that word merit because it's a real gut check. It was a real gut check for me in recent seasons. I would say in this recent season and just weeks past. A New Testament scholar, his name is Daryl Bach, he says this about merit. He says, merit has a negative side. It can become manipulative. It can become a manipulative way to invoke a bargaining chip. Rather than approaching God on the basis of his mercy and grace, we approach him by appealing to our track record and subtly, subtly suggesting he owes us a response. How true that statement rings. As I was reminded of the recent news that shook the evangelical Christian world in revealing the moral and ethical failure of yet another highly respected and honored Christian public figure. But the troubling thing for me was not just about a moral failure of a respected leader. God knows that we, we all have our own moral failures. The troubling thing was to recognize how easily pride 
can lead someone to become spiritually blind to reality, to believing that their merit from good works can be somehow manipulatively used as a bargaining chip. That was the scary part for me. Pride is not only recognized in the Bible as a serious sin, it's actually in a 2015 article uh, put out by Psychology Today, they said this about pride. Pride prevents us from acknowledging our human vulnerabilities. The shame-driven pride makes us too uncomfortable to be able to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I made a mistake. When pride rules, we believe we're always right. And when pride infected the heart of the Pharisee, there were four things that happened. Maybe more, but from the passage, I was able to gather four things. Number one, his faith was misplaced in his good works and self-righteousness rather than on God and his mercy. Number two, he looked at his neighbor with contempt rather than loving them. And number three, he couldn't properly see how he stood in relationship to God. And number four, as a result of one, two, and three, pride inhibited the Pharisee from obeying the most important commandments, which are to love God and love neighbor. This made him unfit for the kingdom of God. So what is it then that made the tax collector fit to be a citizen of God's kingdom? It was humility. Humility allowed the tax collector to take a sober look at his life and to know that, to know where he stood as he approached God. He knew that the only thing that could make him fit for God's kingdom was God's mercy and kindness towards him. And in order to receive it, it required a posture of repentance, an openness to allowing God to transform the way that he thought, which in turn would lead to a changed way of living. Daryl Bach says, approaching God with humility radically alters the dynamics of how we see him, ourselves, and our neighbor. So humility then, in this parable, also does four things. Number one, it allows us to rightly place our faith in God and his mercy alone. Number two, it enables us to have compassion for our neighbor rather than contempt. Number three, it helps us to see where we really stand in relationship to God. And number four, ultimately it helps us learn to love God and love our neighbor. So as I wrap up, where does this leave you and me? Another unique function of parables is that the listener is always invited to participate in it. The way that parables work are that no one actually gets off the hook. No one gets to say, oh, this parable actually applies to so-and-so, but it doesn't apply to me. Parables don't work that way. They always force the listener to respond. In fact, by not responding, you've actually responded. But here's the thing, they always give the listener an option. We actually get to choose. If we are seeking to be people who are fit for God's kingdom, Jesus communicates through this parable that a heart of humility is required. Not because humility is itself is a work that gets us to be fit for God's kingdom, but 
it produces a condition in our heart that allows the Holy Spirit to work in us, to continue that work of sanctification. The Christian life is often described as a journey. It's meant to be a process of growth. Um, But as my theology professor in seminary, I love this image, he explained this once. He said, where you are on that journey is actually less important than the direction you're headed. The tax collector may have only been at the beginning of his discipleship journey. He was standing far off in the temple. Some major shifts in his life did need to change, but he was headed in the right direction. On the other hand, someone like an educated, devout Pharisee may have been much further along on his discipleship journey at some point, but was currently heading in the wrong direction. And I think the sobering application of this parable is to say that none of us are immune to the blinding, destructive sin of pride. And so, if it is indeed blinding, how will we see that pride is creeping into our hearts? How will we notice it? I think there are a few self-evaluation questions that can help us be aware of this sin of pride creeping into our lives. Or maybe those who know us best Maybe it's good for us to ask them these questions. Number one, do I look at others as less than? Maybe it's a specific person. Maybe it's a type of person, um, somebody with a specific political leaning, somebody with lower education, somebody in a different race, in a different social class, whatever it is. Do I look at someone else with contempt or less than? Number two, Do I compare myself to others who don't measure up to my standards in order to feel better about myself? Number three, do I justify wrongs, small or big, once in a while or often, but do I justify wrongs on the basis that I have many other good qualities and deeds that make up for those wrongs? Number four, do I find it difficult to admit when I'm wrong? Do I find it difficult to admit my own failures and mistakes and shortcomings? That was the fourth one, sorry. If you answer yes to any of those, and I'll be honest, probably all of us can answer yes at least to one, at least in different points of our lives, but if you answer yes to any of those, I encourage you to bring that to God in the posture and in the attitude of the tax collector and pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Romans 3, verses 22 and 24 says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. I think in this parable we could actually insert, there is no difference between Pharisee and tax collector. There is no difference between Rick and fill in the blank. Your name, fill in the blank. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And so as a final thought about Lent, as God evaluated, tested, and prepared the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years, 
in order to be fit to enter the promised land? And as the Holy Spirit evaluated, tested, and prepared Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness in order to be fit for his ministry, I would invite us to engage the next 40 days of Lent and invite the Holy Spirit to do the necessary conditioning work in us in order that we might be fit disciples for God's kingdom here and now and for his coming kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise for who you are. We confess, Lord, that we can easily fall into a sense of self-righteousness. Pride can so easily creep in. Lord, we know that it can blind us from reality, from being able to see you, from being able to see ourselves, from being able to see our neighbor. We ask you to forgive us for all the ways in which we might be misplacing our trust in the wrong places. We ask that you would help us, especially during this intentional Lent season, to reorient our faith in you and to trust and rely on your mercy and grace alone. God, would you help us to adopt an attitude of humility so that we could be open to the conditioning work that your spirit wants to do in each one of us and communally as a church community. Thank you, Lord that you are patient, that you are full of grace and mercy and full of love. Help us to respond with obedience out of that love and out of your grace and not in a legalism, self-righteous kind of way. We pray this in the name of Jesus with thanksgiving. Amen.